Hey Shane, how's it going today? Not too bad, Marcella. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, really looking forward to kind of catching up and hearing a little bit more about what you're working on. Um, some interesting times right now, so uh, I'm excited to kind of hear some of your thoughts. Okay, yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so before we start, maybe just uh, if you can do a quick kind of intro about yourself and your background, what you're working on, uh, stuff like that, and then we can kind of go from there. Sure. Um, I've often described myself as a farm boy turned engineer that got corrupted into the business world, but I kind of, I dabble between a few different things. I guess since I get bored easily and I play well with others, I tend to do a lot of stuff and it yeah. doesn't necessarily all connect together. So um, I'm currently doing a PhD in human robot interaction, which is essentially the psychology of hanging out with machines. Very cool. Uh, I'm the director at the Center for uh, digital transformation at Schulich School of Business. I co-founded a an AI startup uh, called Babbly uh, that focuses on supporting parents um, as their child learns to speech and as their minds develop. And I'm a fellow uh, with my friend Paul Hartley at uh, Human Future Studio, which is a think tank. So, wow. a bunch of different hats, but I yeah. find <clears throat> I find interesting ways to weave them all together. So, yeah, yeah, I bet um, you must have some interesting perspectives because. I feel like all of those different areas are being affected right now. And it's kind of like, you know, if you were to put on a different hat from all the different perspectives, all of them have their own kind of individual intricacies and future changes. Um, what are some areas that you're kind of seeing or what are some challenges that you're seeing out there that people are facing? Yeah, it's funny. You, um, even though we don't know each other that well, you kind of just hit the nail on the head with, I think one of the biggest struggles that I have now, which is since I wear so many different hats, I often find myself challenging or second guessing. Like life was a lot easier when I was just a young, naive engineer. <clears throat> Whereas now when I have to consider, you know, the human element, the societal element, the technical element, all these things, I, I end up in debates with myself a lot. Um, but I, I think generally still, if one theme has stood out for me uh, amongst COVID, it's, it's kind of an inevitable one given my background, which is that of automation. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we look at how many instances we had where, you know, people didn't want to interact with each other, uh, where, you know, situations with people who are sick having to go into the health system. And yes, of course, you know, people, humans are required in many of those roles, but there, I think a situation like COVID has raised a lot of questions about where do people need to be mm -hmm. and where is something that we can take a task and put it to either a robot or some sort of, you know, digital um, platform that can take care of it hopefully as good but if not then even to compensate for things around that so yeah, yeah. I guess we've kind of started some of that already with things like chatbots and using data and AI to kind of funnel people in the right direction before it gets too <laughs> complex where you actually need to bring in a person uh, but what does that look like long term uh, so long term, I think it gets only even more tricky and complicated, but yeah. hopefully that much more valuable. Uh, so I think a lot of the, a lot of the automation that you see right now is maybe I'll, I'll be, I'll be kind and call it like the toddler or like preschooler, or maybe even like kindergarten era, totally. or at least through infancy, which is good. Um, but we're still kind of nowhere near being at the point of, a, an interaction that people would expect and enjoy. Yeah. Um, 
we, you know, we, we compare every interaction that we have with a machine <clears throat> to an interaction that we could have had with a person. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty high standard because, you know, humans are amazingly complex. Uh, so the challenge is we still have so much growing to do and not just in the obvious areas, like, you know, people talk about artificial general intelligence and making a machine that is either sentient or so good at doing as many things as we can throw at it, that it might as well be. But there's a lot of even just smaller stuff. I mean, everything from like the physical embodiment, the mechanics, um, social nuance, uh, all these things. Uh, it, it's funny. A lot of the robotics community used to talk about automating tasks with three words, which was dirty, dull, and dangerous. And that was kind of the, you know, the talking line that every roboticist towed for like 20, 30 years, which is, you know, what are the tasks that robots are good suited for? And it's, it's the things that are either too dangerous for us to do, too monotonous that we don't want to bother with, or just mm -hmm. kind of gross that we want to go send a machine to do it. I think now we're finally starting to see the potential for robotics and automation beyond that. So where can we actually start to think about um, not just replacing human work or human tasks because we don't want to do them, but either augmenting or also replacing human tasks because we actually have a machine that could do it better. Um, yeah. So it's a unique time for that. Yeah. Do you think, um, I mean, I would imagine that with all the social, well, I guess it wouldn't really be social distancing, but this idea of kind of trying to limit human contact right now, um, I guess it would kind of speed up some of those um, needs and some of the thinking that's going on behind uh, human robotic interaction, like how that actually fits into society and how that works as a functional piece of everyone's life. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There's ahead. been, so it, it's funny, there hasn't been a massive short-term change just because particularly robotics, like anything that has that physical embodiment, it takes so long to develop because the systems are so complex because they usually yeah. involve mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer engineering, and now machine learning and so many different things that you can't make quick pivots in, in that kind of a world. Um, but you are actually still seeing people taking existing more reliable robots and using them for interesting and unique ways. So uh, the most obvious ones are obviously healthcare um, where, you know, people are looking for how can we use a robot to do triage instead of putting a nurse or some other health worker there who's literally doing a very basic job of just asking somebody about their symptoms. Um, yeah. Why do you need to put a human in that dangerous position if that individual could possibly infect them? So there are little things you're seeing in the short term, but I'm kind of more interested in the longer term paradigm shifts that are going to come out of this. And I think those things will be led by human need um, as all good and important things are. Mm -hmm. But I think there's going to be a natural pairing for a lot of that stuff towards different types of automation. So robotics, AI, stuff like that. Um, so my, my thought is that we're really going to see a bit of a robotics revolution more in the next five years uh, than we probably have in the last 20, just because coming out of COVID, as long as we don't have like the shortest memories ever, everyone's going to go, oh, wow, that was a pretty terrible time. I wish we would have had more robots or more automation or more digitization in these scenarios that were kind of bad uh, in the middle of that pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Five years is pretty, pretty soon. What kind of changes do you think we'll be seeing in five years? I know this is still kind of, maybe it's, maybe you, your opinion is more grounded in actual research. <laughs> My opinion is more grounded in assumptions, but um, yeah, I'm just curious like what you think about uh, within that time frame, what we'll kind of see. Yeah. 
I mean, five years isn't <clears throat> that long, right? Yeah, so, totally. Uh, and especially when my brain always has to think about the technical limitations, yeah. it means my five years is probably more like your two or three years. So, <laughs> um, but I, I think I will, uh, I, I do foresee a lot more social robotics coming into play. So situations where we aren't just expecting technology to, you know, if then kind of process. So mm -hmm. move this there, do that there. Um, I think we're going to see situations where robots are taking on roles where they actually have to interact with people. Again, I'm at risk of uh, being a hammer looking for nails here, given that it's my area of expertise, but um, we're, we're also finally starting to get there. Um, I think social robotics is still very much in its infancy, yeah. um, but we're on the precipice, again, largely because of a lot of machine learning applications um, to have machines that could actually socialize with people not because they've figured out how to socialize, but um, just because they've learned how to mimic us. Um, not to go too far off, but what machine learning is really good at is predicting. Um, that's ultimately what it does. And so for every problem, uh, you know, that was, I think, Ajay Agrawal at U of T, that was his whole thing. That if you look at like a self-driving car, it doesn't know how to drive. All it really knows how to do is how to predict how a human would drive in the next second. So that's all it's doing is constantly updating and thinking, okay, what will a human do next? Mm -hmm. Clear skies, open roads, keep going. You know, kid running in the street, stop sign, I better stop because that's what a human would do. I think similarly with social applications, we no longer have to think through all the nuance of social interaction. We've just started to codify enough of human social interaction and human social nature that we can start to feed that into a machine and it can more and more successfully mimic and imitate a good social interaction. Um, and you're already seeing this in things like chatbots for yeah. uh, you know, customer service lines and stuff like that. I think those, again, are the infancy applications that we're going to start to see expanding into something more impactful. That's really cool. Um, when, when you kind of talk about human-robot uh, or machine interactions, you're, also, you're talking about a physical thing right we're not we're not i mean i guess it could also be something like a chatbot or like a an interaction online or through some sort of tablet or computer or screen but are, is what you're studying more about an actual interaction with a robot yeah a uh, so thing? typically hri researchers human robot interaction um the robot almost always to any anyone who calls himself a roboticist means there is a physical presence to Got it. Thing. Okay. Um, I know in business there's RPA robot process automation and stuff like that, but we roboticists kind of look our, down our noses at that stuff. Um, that said, uh, there is obviously a ton of overlap between things like HRI, uh, HCI, human computer interaction and HAI human automation interaction, which is the more industrial side. So, um, while, yeah, my, my research is more on the physical robotics side, there's unquestionably bleed and insight that I think goes yeah. around to anything, be it chatbots yeah. or just something more banal AI. Totally. Cool. That's, I mean, that, once that industry starts uh, kind of expanding rapidly, it's going to open up so many opportunities for like all sorts of things, UX design, interface design, mm -hmm. like it's super cool. Like it's going to be a revolution for sure. Fully. And, and now I get to put on my like humanist hat, my design thinking hat and <clears throat> kind of tell the engineer to go take a seat um, <laughs> because I'll say you're right for all the really cool technical opportunities and things that it's going to open up. It's also going to open up so many challenges and they're really interesting and yeah. cool ones, but they're, they're very, very numerous. Um, yeah. Like you can think of 
uh, robotics right now, like a 1997 GeoCities webpage. It's got like terrible GIFs and flashing lights and neon colors and everywhere. And anyone that goes on there kind of like has to hold their stomach as it churns while they scroll down the page. Um, you're right, like robotic UX isn't really a thing right now. It's, yeah. it's a buzz term that people like me who do keynotes throw around, but it doesn't necessarily mean too, too much just yet because the technology still is lagging behind what the experience could be anyway. Um, oh, so yeah. We couldn't really design that good of an experience because the technology is going to get in the way, but we're getting pretty close. Um, and so that, I think you're right, opens up not just a cool uh, possibility to do like UX and things like that with machines, but you have to remember um, these machines are now more social than anything else that we've ever done UX with. So user experience with like, you know, a mobile optimized web page is one thing, but user experience with something that we look at and we start to think, man, you're, you're kind of like a human. Um, how does that play in our minds? So we're as much now doing like digital UX as we are cognitive psychology. Um, and oh. like, that's a really fun area. Yeah, that's cool. I feel like we could do one of these just on robotic UX. <laughs> oh, I, I will go further down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it would be so fascinating. Me. It's like a whole new discipline that's opening up that's kind of borrowing from other you know capabilities and skills. And it's, it's super fascinating. And even for yeah. like opportunities for opening up whole new segments of you know advertising and brand representation and all these different things that also need design and strategy like it's going to be super amazing um are are there any cool examples in canada because i've heard of i mean maybe it's just you know that the u.s examples get a little bit more um reach uh but is there anything cool that's going on right now in canada um, I mean, from a research perspective, there there is lots of cool research um, on the academic side. Like you called out, sadly, Canada's never been great at translating over to the industry side. A lot of our sort of new research and new startup concepts. Um, I'll be honest, from the social robotics side, there most of the work going on there is going on in Japan, China, and the U.S., Mm-hmm. And if I were putting on other, another hat as your investment advisor, I would stay, say, stay away from those companies uh, as far as you can. I think Canadian companies are quite wise to not invest too heavily in social robotics yet. Yeah. Uh, because we still haven't found that, you know, perfect killer app and the technology is still a little clunky. So like, I think in the last two years, you've seen three or four different social robotics companies go under. So wow. Uh, really? Yeah, there was Mayfield Robotics. They made a big robot called Baxter. Uh, there was Kiro, which was the little base with like the swivelly round head. Uh, there was Jibo, which was another similar one. There was uh, Cosmo, which was a little social interactive toy. Great names. Um, Very uh, robotics industry, right? <laughs> oh, and, and they all, I, I swear, they all took massive design elements from uh, Ava, from um, Oh. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So they all had that, like that rounded, sleek, white, you know, innocuous-looking kind of medical feel that was very futuristic. It, it, uh, you know, slinty blue eyes, things like that. Yeah, these are all common design languages that you see in robotics because we're socially primed for these things from pop culture and science fiction. So that's such an amazing point. Um, like, where do you, when you're kind of creating something like this, how do you design a physical thing? Like, how do you even do that without any sort of reference? So you have to think 
um, it's weird. <clears throat> a good roboticist has to flip back and forth between their technical mind and their human, their psychology mind. And what you usually, I find, start well with is think about the technical mind. What are you trying to achieve with this robot? And then based on what you're achieving, try to find parallels in the world that we are comfortable with, that we would be akin to. Um, and so, you know, for example, if you want to design a robot that looks like it's a big hulking security bot, then yeah, you're going to make it look like the Terminator. If you want to design something for a hospital that's intended to distill care and comfort, then yeah, you want it to look like Big Hero 6 or whatever it is. Um, there's, there's a ton of really clever research that actually points to the importance of appearance and visual design. Yeah. Even obviously within sort of a humanoid robot, you can vary a lot of things like facial features, gaze, body language. Um, but even when you start talking about the morphology of the robot you're going to do. So um, <clears throat> many companies will choose to make their robot look like an animal uh, because that will sort of connote feelings of like pet and familiarity. So there's um, things like Paro or um, oh, what's the Pleo, the dinosaur. Uh, these are kind of research platforms that are also care robots that are supposed to be kind of like pets. Uh, and they're designed to, you know, act like a little dog or a cat or a seal or something like that. Um, on the flip side, what's really interesting is in social robotics right now, you're seeing a big trend of a lot of these social robots looking very petamorphic or childlike. Um, so you think about like the Pepper robot or the Now robot or any of these, and they look kind of like eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds. This is done very intentionally because what it does is it tricks our cognitive frames into thinking, oh, you're a robot, but you're like a child, so I should lower my expectations. We're not going to have an adult conversation. This is going to be like talking to an eight-year-old. So I'll maybe yeah. simplify what I say, not ask you anything too complicated to do, stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of good trickery that's, going, that, that's being used in UX to kind of inform robotic design. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Um, super cool. In terms of like some of the stuff that we're going through now, um, what is kind of like the future? I mean, we talked a little bit about automation. What's the future in terms of like how we interact and, you know, what are some issues that you think we're facing now that could be solved in the future? Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to tread on some kind of contentious territory, but this stuff is core to my research. It's very ethically complicated, but that's kind of why I love it. Yeah. Um, and it requires me to dig back and give a little bit of a history lesson first. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, I know. All ears. So, <laughs> so there was research going on at Stanford in the mid nineties that came to be known as the media equation. Their experiments were super simple. What they did is uh, the participants came into a room and they did a really boring like file manipulation task on a desktop computer. Uh, while they were doing that, the computer would pop up these social messages saying things like, you know, go us or great job or aren't we a good team? Um, and then at the end of the experiment, uh, the participant would give uh, or complete a short survey in one of two conditions. They'd either finish the survey on the same computer that they just worked on, or they would do a survey on an identical computer like a meter away on, you know, in the same room. And what the researchers found was that when people gave feedback on the other computer, they were far more critical of the original computer. So think about that for a second. That means that you're worried about sort of hurting the computer's feelings, but you'll talk shit about it behind its back. So it was one of those beautiful moments in academia where you run an experiment and you get surprised by your own results. Yeah. Um, and this concept came to further be known as CASA, or Computers as Social Actors. 
um, because what they realized was that we humans are so hardwired for social connection that we will often even like forego reality to kind of fulfill our social obligations and social needs. So we'll see, you know, a computer or a robot and it'll act slightly human-like and we'll want to play along because that's what we naturally do. So that's the history lesson. Now, the cool part is that that means, my God, we can kind of exploit this effect. Uh, and that's what I'm doing uh, a lot of my research on now is what are the limitations of this effect? You know, where do people look at a robot and say it's a human versus it's a hammer? Um, but we can exploit that effect. Uh, like I ran a study that uh, I was able to emotionally manipulate people with a robot and persuade them to do stuff. So the robot would say things like, it would make me happy if you do this. Yeah. And versus a lot of other conditions, that one was the most effective because we humans respond so well to emotional ploys. Um, I'm doing another one right now with a, uh, a robot in an authority position and looking at how do people feel when <clears throat> a robot suddenly embodies this role that we're not used to it being in. Uh, so essentially the, you know, the, the possibilities for what you could do with robots in the next five to 10 years is pretty much ask yourself, what do people do? And then how close could we come to that? So this is everything from, um, you know, the, again, these are applications that I don't necessarily advocate for, but they are realities. Um, in elder care facilities, uh, very often one of the most difficult things that nurses have to do is just spend a lot of time socializing with uh, the residents there and making sure that they eat their meal or double checking that they put their clothing on right or, you know, pretty basic stuff because a lot of these individuals live with dementia. Mm -hmm. um, those are tasks that a robot can do. You know, we, my lab did a, a project a few years back where we created a mealtime assistance robot and it sat there and it would interact with a person who uh, intended uh, for a person who had mild dementia and it would ask them, you know, jokes or tell them jokes and sort of interact with them. And every now and then it would say, oh, by the way, your potatoes look really good. Tell me about them as kind of prompts for that person to keep eating because very yeah. often people with dementia will forget to eat unless somebody's there reminding them. So we have the potential for all these social tasks that humans do um, to now start to be digitized and automated. But that obviously raises massive ethical concerns um, and even practical concerns about, okay, well, what are the implications? Um, you know, morality of, yeah, do we want to have our grandmothers interacting with a robot for the last five years of her life? But also just like practically, what will that do to a person? Mm -hmm. um, will they get sick of it over time? Will they even start to play into it more and view robots as more and more human-like? Um, what are the implications of all that? Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, do you think that there's also a, like on the potential negative side, there's an opportunity for people or organizations to manipulate people a little bit? You know, if you can make your own operating system and you can make your own robot and you can do whatever you want with it, if you're an organization, it sounds like people are very easily manipulated. <laughs> in order to be social, right? So like you have this assistant that could basically tell you to do anything and yeah. you just trust, blindly trust them. How do you deal with something like that? Is that, would that come down to like government regulations? Um, I think government regulations and education. Yeah. Uh, sure. So I, it's funny, the, the study that I mentioned, it was, it was my first study in my PhD about three years ago <clears throat> that I did that thing. It was a really, really simple task. Uh, people were trying to count the number of jelly beans in a jelly bean jar, like that classic carnival game, except for the robots uh, that were there would pop up and try to convince you to change your answer using different persuasive techniques. So they'd say <laughs> things 
Uh, they like threaten you, like you'll be in big trouble when robots take over the world unless you use my guess. Or, yeah. uh, you know, they use like an exclusive offer, like don't tell anyone I told you this, but this is the number you want to use. But again, the most effective one was this emotional ploy. The, It'll make me happy if you use my guess. Um, and I remember I, I had one of those similar kind of freak out moments uh, as an academic when I, I'm analyzing the results of my very first study and I'm like, oh, I got statistical significance, which is always what an academic wants. But then I looked at, you know, what was the most prominent one? And it was this emotional thing. And I was like, oh my God, I just emotionally manipulated a ton of people with a robot. That's messed up. And so what I've kind of realized after that is every good HRI researcher worth, you know, worth their weight eventually starts to have to look at ethics. Yeah. So if you look at HRI researchers around the world, probably like 60 to 70% of them also say something about, oh, and I do research in ethics and robo-ethics and things like that. Yeah. Because yeah, you start encountering these scenarios where you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, and so yeah, we, we get into all these scenarios and I've, I've had to like, I've convinced myself that my research is still valuable to do for two reasons, like I mentioned before. Um, you know, the first is education. So I'm doing this research mm -hmm. in an open environment. I try to talk about whatever possible. Uh, I publish it so that people can freely, you know, read this and learn, even though, God, reading journal papers is pulling teeth. But um, I'm trying to disseminate more knowledge out there so that people can be aware and make informed decisions. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the other thing, too, is it's kind of naive to say, oh God, Shane, you're doing research that no one's ever seen and there's ethical boundaries and issues that you're confronting with this. No, we've been using an emotional manipulation in technology for decades. Oh, that's um, true, yeah. You know, I'm just being explicit about it. Like I view my research as formalizing and being explicit the kind of work that's already being done behind closed doors at Facebook and Google and you name it. So- yeah. You know, this, this kind of stuff is already happening. I think the only scarier or different part with HRI is like we talked about before, it's got a face now. So suddenly that gets kind of weird for us. Yeah. As soon as you said that, I kind of thought about Facebook, which was also basically, you know, creating a social offering, but also using that in order to gather as much data about you as possible and do who knows what with it. Yeah. Well, and, and it then, took us a long time to figure out what was going on there, or at least the general population. Exactly. And then, and not just like gather the data, but actively run experiments on it. Uh, I don't know if you uh, ever listened to a uh, radio lab podcast. I do, yeah. yeah. They had that great episode on, I think in about 2015 or 2016 on the trust engineers at Facebook. Oh yeah. I've heard who, of this, yeah. <clears throat> their job was essentially to manipulate tiny little changes in like the language of how certain comments were posted or certain requests were made to optimize digital uh, language and digital communication for, you know, trust and compliance. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, stuff like that is, it's kind of scary, but it's, it's the new reality that we live in. So yeah, people just need to be aware for sure. Exactly. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing at Babley, because that also sounds very interesting and it sounds like it would be a tool that um, also would be, even more important now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ba Battley's great because it is essentially the thing that uh, purifies any evil doing that I do within my PhD. <laughs> so <The> filter. <laughs> yeah, so if, if I'm spending time with my PhD, like messing with people and creating like evil little robots, then 
uh, Babbly is kind of a great way to show uh, the good that artificial intelligence can do in the world. Um, so the company was founded about a year and a half ago um, with my good friend, Mariam Nabavi. Um, she's the CEO. She's, she's the real like leader of this thing. I'm kind of just working part-time and helping supporters. She carries this thing and flies off with it. Um, but it was started in response to her son, uh, who was unfortunately diagnosed on the autistic spectrum when he was around two. And um, one of Mariam's big frustrations was that she had an inkling that something was up with it, even as early as one year old for him. But uh, as is a very common case, she later found out, um, being a mother who goes in at when your you know, son is 12 months, 15 months old, uh, doctors often have all kinds of things to say to you. You know, it's, mm. oh, well, he's a boy, they're late talkers, you're a multilingual household, you know, just give it time. And very often these things are right. Um, but the problem is even those doctors, you know, there was a while where she was, I think, very frustrated with those doctors, but now she's realized that there's not much they can do anyway. Um, before a child starts exhibiting real social behaviors, you know, two, two and a half and up, um, it's really difficult for even very trained professionals to diagnose things like autism or apraxia or general delay. Um, so Mariam came to me way, way back when um, because of, you know, my work in robotics and machine learning and stuff and said, hey, I have this kind of crazy idea, um, but, you know, could we find a way to identify conditions like this sooner and in doing so also help parents support their own child's growth. And it was, you know, kind of one of those crazy ideas that, like I said, I, I get bored quickly and I love doing stuff. So I was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, so, you know, we built our first models that essentially started separating different types of infant speeches. I, I learned more about how infants talk than oh I think anyone should ever know other than <laughs> uh, uh, somebody in pediatrics. Um, it was really fortuitous that my sister is a speech pathologist, so she was able to guide us a lot of uh, information, and we were able to start to build a system that can distinguish these different vocalization types um, for two purposes. One, if a child is falling behind on a certain skill, there's a whole slew of different play-based activities that we can recommend to parents to say, oh, you know, your kid's maybe lacking a bit here. Spend 10 minutes a day doing this little game with them, and that'll help. Um, and then two, the other kind of moonshot that we're going for is as we get more of a database and as we start to identify confirmed uh, diagnoses, we hope to actually build a tool that can, you know, be listening as uh, parents upload their videos and start to identify early warning signs. We, we ultimately, you know, our moonshot is to bring the average age of diagnosis for conditions like uh, autism spectrum disorder down from like five to, you know, two or lower. So Yeah, that's really cool. That's a really, really interesting application. Um, and then you said that you're also involved in uh, the dig digitization field at, uh, was it York? Uh, yeah, yeah. So York has a uh, SEEK, which is the Schulich Executive Education Center. Um, <clears throat> it's like their executive branch for corporate education and stuff like that. Got it. Um, I co-direct a center of excellence with actually my master's supervisor, um, we got along thick as thieves like 10 years ago when I did my thesis in my MBA and we were always looking for new ways to work together. And, you know, he came to me one day and said, Hey, Shulik wants me to build this thing. Uh, I need somebody, um, you know, a bit younger and fresher who's got more of the technical knowledge. Do you want to do this thing? And I said, yeah, this is a great opportunity to work together and really cool. Um, and we essentially teach corporate clients um, how to think about digital transformation. So, 
you know, how do we think about emerging technologies and how they could disrupt industry on stuff. So it's great because I now get to leverage all the years I spent kind of doing and now flipping that back into teaching with the combination of theory that I've got from my academic side, but then also like case studies and practice from years of consulting and years of digital projects and things. So. Yeah, the digitization uh, side is super, like that. that's where our background is at tennis. Those are the kinds of projects we work on as well. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how rapidly organizations start thinking about change now after this, because anyone who's kind of been a laggard on the innovation side and, you know, or not even a laggard, any, well, yeah, anyone who's been a laggard, but you don't even have to have been in the top percentile of companies that innovate in order to be kind of, falling behind right now but there are some wild examples of um companies that just have never invested in any sort of innovation or, or digitization and now they're scrambling yeah even I like mean, even, even just right now uh, the one i always look at and kind of shake my head i it, it's I, I feel kind of bad because it's you know picking on the little kid but um government is always uh just hard to look at sometimes and you know particularly when you see uh, the court systems as a great example covid they all basically just shut down um, because they were so woefully unprepared to think about things like virtual conferences um, even like apparently i talked to a friend in the legal system apparently even email is a little bit dicey for certain like senior judges and stuff like that that they still use a lot of printouts and things like that and you know i, I think to your point the one of the really good things coming out of covid will be yeah, that, that, that won't fly anymore. Um, like at all levels, government or industry, if you can't get the most basic table stakes of digitization done, then get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in big trouble for sure. Are you guys still um, running classes right, right now? Yeah, um, yeah, I've been impressed actually both with York and with U of T um, at how quickly, you know, here's Zoom if you wanna use it, uh, here's Microsoft Teams that we use, uh, Here's this thing called Echo 360. If you're going to be making educational videos, here's all these solutions. But they also just said, but you know what? Go, do your thing. Like, yeah. if you have a better way, if you, you, you have some knowledge, go for it. Um, That's great. Now, it, of course, means that, like, the quality of educators and presentations will vary with the individual. Um, but from what I heard, everything was still relatively well received uh, in terms of how things were delivered. Um, it's a little frustrating for us at uh, Seek at Schulich because we had just literally finished building this curriculum and the very first uh, offering that we were going to do with it was going to be an open enrollment. So anyone from a bunch of different companies could, could enroll it was going to be at the end of March and we built it for a, a one day online, three days in class and then one day online. Oh and uh, yeah. And then COVID happened and we were like, yeah. okay, well, uh, we can reuse a lot of this work, but we got to start over and completely redesign the course. So we're now in the process of redesigning it for September to be fully digital. So cool. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting course. I'm sure there's tons of value there for organizations that are kind of like figuring out what's next on their roadmap. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, even the education field, like the, the whole idea of mm. education and how to deliver educational content is we're having a ton of conversations around um, around delivery of educational modules and e-learning and all for all sorts of organizations, everything from like onboarding to, you know, client, you know, employee policies, things like that, education, quizzes, cybersecurity, like there's just so much opportunity in the LMS uh, world right now. 
Um, yeah. And honestly, I, it, it makes me happy to hear that agencies like yours are getting more involved in that because I think it does need, as good as it is what we're starting to do, I think it also needs a bit of that like crazy out there kick in the pants uh, mm-hmm. that agencies tend to usually be the ones to provide. Um, just because so far, you know, how we've digitized education is, you know, mostly by do what we do in the classroom, but on a Zoom call. Um, and yeah, maybe you put in a little quiz and things like that. But like, you know, even the best in the game, when you look at like Coursera or Code Academy or any of those, um, they're, you know, they're, they're still just digital classrooms. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to see when the really unique stuff starts coming out. Uh, yeah. So I've seen a few decent examples. I mean, actually Code Academy is one of the, one of the good ones. They'll teach you a concept and then it's like a live coding environment that you practice in, but very cool. that's, that's a very applied skill. Yeah. Um, but I've also seen chatbots that are programmed as essentially study guides. So they have a very specific set of knowledge around a course or a topic and you engage with this chatbot to learn and you can have a conversation with it. And, you know, it has different games. It could do like a cue card type game or something like that with you. But it's like the roommate that helps you study, which I think is kind of a more clever idea. And I want to see where else can go. Yeah, totally. We actually uh, designed a designed and built a, a learning platform for a cybersecurity company. Mm. and uh, it's all custom built so it's not living on any um, on any LMS platform which means we can be way more flexible with what we can do in it Uh, but some of the discussion very early on was how do we actually you know as you're learning about phishing can we actually send text messages or like (laughs) links that people click on or anyways there's this whole bunch of ideas that we were trying to push the envelope a little bit but of course there's like the liability aspect behind that as well. If your company's sending you phishing texts. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Michael Douglas movie, the game, but in <clears throat> nerdy uh, cybersecurity format. Yeah, totally. Um, that, that actually made me uh, think of, um, there was a Google immersive game, like probably almost a decade ago. Um, but you signed up for it. And then it, it was kind of like the Michael Douglas movie where, you started getting like text messages or pre-recorded calls or emails and you were essentially immersed in this new reality. It was like a spy game. That's awesome. Um, it yeah. would be really amazing to be able to do things like that. Yeah. You know, obviously with the right subject material, but totally. uh, to kind of immerse somebody more in like, this is the existence that you live in. So you better learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Cool. Well, thanks so much uh, for your time. This was all super fascinating stuff. It's, uh, it's awesome that you get to work on all this future thinking i'm lucky i mean granted you know i spent a lot of years building my luck but totally. uh yeah i've, I've kind of tried to intentionally design a world that exists in many spots so that when i get bored of one i can jump to the other and then yeah, all awesome. stuff over there and yeah <laughs> well yeah thanks again for all your time of course thank you much have a good one you too